to the 12th chapter, and today to its final 13 verses. So Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation." While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Father, may it be that we would follow this Jesus, that we would come to do the will of his Father, of you, and God, that we would, by following him, be your children, his siblings, and that we would, by obeying you, our Father, prove ourselves to be your children and Christ's siblings. Help us to that end today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. That's the request of these religious professionals here, these Scribes and Pharisees in verse 38, we want to see a sign from you, Jesus. Show us some evidence, in other words, that you really are the Son of David, that you really are the Messiah, that you really are sent from God. Do some sort of miracle, Jesus, that will verify that you are, in fact, God's chosen servant, the Christ. Now, is the request genuine? Do these men really want for Jesus to prove his identity? Do they really believe about themselves that they will be convinced if Jesus performs some sort of miracle in front of them? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe they really do think that if Jesus will do something amazing here, then we'll be convinced. 
But in any case, whether these men are genuine or not, Jesus, verse 39, is not going to do tricks for them. He's not going to do a miracle here in order to satisfy their craving. Indeed, he says that it is an evil and adulterous generation that craves in this way. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. By which I think Jesus means not that he expects people to believe in him without any evidence as to who he is, but that it is evil and unfaithful to ignore, to overlook, or to downplay the evidence that we already have, and then to turn around and ask him to do a sign to prove who he is. I think Jesus means here not that he expects us to believe in him without evidence, but that it is evil and unfaithful to ignore or overlook or downplay the evidence we already have and then ask him to prove himself by some sign. Because think about the men in this passage, these scribes and Pharisees with whom Jesus is dialoguing here. If they want evidence of Jesus' identity... If they want to know, is this man the Messiah or not, surely his track record has already spoken for itself, right? He's been going up and down the land, giving sight to the blind, restoring the legs of the lame, unstopping the ears of the deaf, cleansing the skin of lepers, loosing the tongue of the mute, casting out demons, and indeed even raising the dead. And though Jesus has been humble about it, as we saw on Wednesday night, and sometimes even worked to keep this healing ministry quiet, yet the reality is that word about his miracles was not hard to come by. Word was spreading just the same. The great inbreaking of God's kingdom through the coming of this king was not being done in a corner. And so surely these men who are asking for evidence in verse 38, asking for a sign, have already been given plenty of evidence, have already been given plenty of signs. Surely, at the very least, they've heard credible reports of the things that Jesus has been doing, and perhaps they've even seen some of these things with their very own eyes. And so their problem is not that they desire evidence that Jesus is really the Messiah, not that they think that there should be some proof that he really is the expected one. Their problem is that they've already had so much evidence already given to them. So much proof is already out there, and yet they're still asking for more. That's the problem. They haven't believed what has already been done. So it's like a young man, you could think about it, a young man walking out of a college anatomy class in which he has just spent weeks studying the human body with its muscles and its bones and its blood and its vessels and its synapses and all these things which work so marvelously together so that we can all do the things that the human body does. Does that young man, after having seen all of these things, does that young man need to see a miracle? Or to hear an audible voice from heaven in order to have evidence of the existence of God? If he will just look at the evidence that he has just been given, the amazing anatomy of the human body, which cannot be the result of chance, which gives clear evidence that someone designed this organism, if he'll just look at what he's already seen, he will have all the evidence he needs in order to know that there is indeed a creator. 
Now, he may still need to do some thinking and some searching and ask some questions to learn more about that creator, and it will be right for him to ask God to further reveal himself and his ways. But in terms of God's existence, after all the anatomic evidence that he has seen of the reality of design and of a designer, it would be offensive for him to overlook all the evidence right in front of him and to face heavenward and ask for a sign to prove that there really is a God. And so it is here in Matthew 12. After all that has been happening, after all the evidence that has been laid out, after all the miracles and the proof of his identity that Jesus has already put on record, it was evil and adulterous for these men or for anyone else in that day to come to Jesus and ask him for proof. Beware of this, my friend. Beware of being evil and adulterous like these men and like this generation. And I say that to unbelievers this morning, and I say it this morning to believers. Beware, those of you who are yet outside of Christ, beware of overlooking all the evidence that Jesus has already given you of his identity and his power and his love. Evidence both in his word and evidence in the lives of the people in the pews around you. Of his work. Beware of overlooking all this evidence and craving that Jesus do something still more to prove himself to you. Rather, I urge you this morning, believe what he has already proven and give yourself to him in repentance and faith. And let me say to you believers as well, beware that you do not discount or forget or be ungrateful for all the kindness, for all the evidences of God's love and favor and grace that he has already shown you. Beware you don't forget those things or overlook those things and turn your face heavenward demanding that God do still more to prove his love to you. No, no. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. But a believing generation sees the evidence that's already been given And praises God. And back to Matthew 12. When these religious higher-ups come asking for a sign, Jesus isn't going to do tricks for them. He's not going to kowtow to their craving. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it. No sign will be given to it, that is, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. So Jesus It not going to whip something up here to slake the thirst of these Pharisees. And yet he does say that there will be a sign for this generation, for these scribes and Pharisees and for their contemporaries in that day in Israel. There will be a piece of evidence for this generation to watch out for, namely the sign of Jonah. For he says in verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, here's the sign, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the implication there is that just as Jonah was only in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and then he came out again, so the Son of Man himself will only be in the ground for three days and three nights, and then he will resurface as well. That's the sign. 
The sign is that Jesus is prophesying and then they will see the resurrection. (laughs) The resurrection is the sign. So we're reading here that Jesus will be buried. He's going into the heart of the earth. And we're reading here that he will rise again after three days. And so Jesus says, here's a sign for you, boys. If you want proof of who I am, if you want proof that I'm the anointed one, proof that I'm from God, proof that I'm the son of David, proof that I'm the expected one, proof that I'm the Messiah, the Christ, watch what happens three days after they bury me. And we should note that Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus rising from the dead three days after they buried him is a sign in a couple of different ways. A sign of his identity in a couple of different ways. One way is simply that the way Jesus' burial and resurrection so closely mirrors Jonah's burial and resurrection shows the evidence of God's fingerprints on the life and times of Jesus. God did this once before is the idea here. Marvelously bringing his servant back after he had gone down to the depths and lain there for three days. And when it happens again in the same way Jesus is saying here, that will be evidence to you that the fingerprints of the God of Jonah are on my life and on my ministry as well. And then the other way that Jesus' resurrection functions as a sign of his identity is not only in its similarity to Jonah's resurrection, but simply in the fact of a resurrection, right? People don't typically rise from the dead, do they? For God, who holds the keys of life and death, has ordained it that departure from this present life is usually final. And when it's not final... It's because God himself has intervened and worked a miracle. And if God should raise this Jesus from the dead, if this Jesus should be in the heart of the earth for only three days and three nights, this Jesus about whom these religious big cheeses have some suspicion, wouldn't that resurrection be a sign that God doesn't have any suspicion? That God approves of this man? Because would God raise a false Messiah from the dead? If someone was going around claiming to be the Messiah, but not really being the Messiah, would God grant this stamp of approval of resurrection from the dead to someone who was a charlatan? To someone who claimed to be God's anointed, but who actually wasn't? But what if this Jesus, who claims to be God's anointed, what if God does raise him from the dead? Well, that would be a definitive sign, would it not? And that, says Jesus, is the sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And let me ask you, have you considered this sign? Have you thought about the resurrection of Jesus reliably recorded by four, all four gospel writers, witnessed, we're told, by hundreds of eyewitnesses? Have you thought about, have you considered, have you reckoned with this sign? And won't you put your faith in this risen one? He didn't simply claim great things for himself. He gave this miraculous sign, verse 40. He didn't simply claim great things for himself. He rose from the dead as proof of who he was. And I just ask you this morning, if you've reckoned with that proof, 
And I urge you to reckon with it. And if you've never done so before, to believe on this risen one. And to urge you along in belief, listen to this in verse 41. The men of Nineveh, the men to whom Jonah preached when he came out of the belly of the sea monster, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Isn't that an amazing sentence? These people of Nineveh, wicked, pagan Nineveh, listened to Jonah when he brought God's message to them. And they repented. And yet here you are, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees and to this generation in which he's living, here you are, up close and personal with someone greater than Jonah, here you are in contact with the ministry of the very Messiah himself and you aren't heeding his message. You won't repent at his preaching. And Jesus says the men of Nineveh will be witnesses against you in the great day of judgment. The men of Nineveh will stand up on judgment day and they will say to this generation that Jesus is addressing here, if we listen to Jonah, surely you should have listened when Jonah's Messiah came to you. And perhaps the men of Nineveh will rise up against us too if we should arrive at the judgment seat in our own unbelief. For while we are not eyewitnesses of Christ, like the generation here in Matthew 12, yet we do know far more of him and far more of God's plan of redemption than ever the men of Nineveh knew. But will we repent like they did? Will you turn to God like they did? And will we listen to wisdom like the queen of the south did in verse 42? She too, this queen of Sheba we often call her, she too, Jesus says, will rise up and condemn the unbelievers of this Matthew 12 generation. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now these events to which Jesus refers here are not quite so well known as Jonah being thrown overboard and swallowed by the fish and spit out after three days and finally going and preaching in Nineveh. So let me just remind you of the backdrop behind verse 42 here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, was a a wealthy queen from a distant land, distant from Israel, who nevertheless, far away as she lived, had heard about the great wisdom of the Israelite king, Solomon, son of David. And so we're told in 1 Kings 4, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And in 1 Kings 10, we're told that among those who came was this great queen to whom Jesus refers here in verse 42. You can read about it for yourself today. Again, 1 Kings 10. And this queen came a long way, as Jesus points out here. 
And she came all that way. She traveled all those miles and all those days. Why? To hear the wisdom of Solomon. To pose to him the questions that were on her mind and to listen to what this wise man had to say. And here are these scribes and Pharisees, and here's this larger generation that Jesus is speaking to here in Matthew 12, with the greater son of David, with one greater than Solomon, not many days pilgrimage away, but right here in their own backyard. And many of them still don't believe. And some of them are still asking for signs. And this queen who went to such great lengths to hear wisdom will testify against these men at the great and final assize. And I think this citation here about the queen of the south coming to listen to Solomon's wisdom, I think part of the idea here is that Christ's wisdom, which is greater even than Solomon's, is another way in which he's already proven himself. This generation in chapter 12 shouldn't ask for a sign. They should believe the evidence that they already possess, among which is not only Jesus' miracles that we mentioned before, but also his teaching, his wisdom, the gracious words which were falling from his lips. This is evidence of his divine anointing as well. This is evidence of his identity too, his wisdom. And so this generation here in Matthew 12, rather than asking for a sign, should heed the signs they already have. One of them being the wise words of this master teacher. And so should this generation in 2018 heed the wisdom of of the master teacher. If you want to know who Jesus really is, give attention to his teaching. Open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and listen to his wisdom. There is ample evidence here in the Scriptures that this Jesus is indeed God's anointed. And I hope you'll read it. And I hope you'll believe. So all this... In verses 39 through 42, an answer to the scribes and Pharisees and their evil craving for a sign. And then in verses 43, 44, and 45, we have this interesting saying of Jesus about evil spirits. And let's just read it again now. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, what is this all about? Why is this here? Well, let me say, first of all, I don't think Jesus' main point here is for us to go away from this text having learned something per se about demons and demonic oppression. We do learn some things along those lines from this text, of course, but I don't think that's the main point here. I think, rather, based on the way he concludes what he says here, that Jesus is simply using demonic oppression here as an illustration to teach something about this evil generation which he's 
been addressing. Because did you notice the way he concludes this saying? He doesn't just talk about demonic oppression here in these three verses. He describes demonic oppression, yes. But then he says at the end of verse 45, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So do you see? He's already been addressing the folly of this evil generation in the previous verses. And now he's addressing them further by using the nature of demonic oppression as an illustration to make a point about this generation in which he's living. And what is his point? What is he illustrating here in verses 43 through 45? Well, I don't think he's saying that like the man in the illustration, this generation was characterized by demonic oppression and would eventually become more so. That was surely true of some people in that day. But I don't think the comparison that Jesus makes at the end of verse 45 is so much about demonic oppression per se. Rather, I think the point is that like the man in the illustration, the demonically oppressed man in the illustration, this generation, like that man, is going to waste an opportunity to be free indeed. And they're going to end up worse off, verse 45, than before that opportunity came their way. Let me say that again. Like this man in the illustration, the point here is this generation, which Jesus is addressing, is going to waste an opportunity to be free indeed. Just like this man wastes an opportunity to be free indeed, and they're going to end up worse off than before that opportunity came their way. And I think the key to understanding the illustration is to notice in verse 44 that the man in the illustration had this opportunity to be free in verse 44, and he blew it. He had an opportunity to be free, and he wasted it. Did you see that? The demon left in verse 43. For whatever reason, the demon left. Praise God. And the man tidied the house, verse 44, which is perhaps a portrait of him changing some of his habits, cleaning up his lifestyle after the departure of the demon, tidying up the house of his soul. But notice in verse 44 that the house, once occupied by the demon, is now occupied by no one. The house is unoccupied. And I think that's very important. The demon leaves, and the man makes some reforms in his life, but his soul, while it is no longer occupied by the evil spirit, neither is it occupied by the Holy Spirit. The man doesn't invite God in. He doesn't take advantage of God's blessing of the demons going out to ask God himself to enter in. And so his heart goes vacant. Yes, The tenant who previously trashed the house is out and the trash is being cleaned up as well, all of which is good. But the house now sits vacant, which is not good. Because what can happen with a vacant house? It's an opportunity for vagrants to break in, right? It's an opportunity for dope fiends to set up. And if a, a vacant house is such an opportunity you had better believe the fiends of hell are always cruising the streets on the lookout for vacant hearts where they might set up their shop and do their deeds of darkness. And so eventually, this man's unoccupied heart, verse 45, shows itself to be quite a fine place for the demon to come right back in and squat and bring his mates with him so that now the man is worse off than ever he was before. What he should have done instead of leaving the house empty, 
was to invite a much better tenant, namely the Lord, to come and dwell in the house. But he squandered that opportunity. And remember now that that squandered, that wasted opportunity is the main point, I think, that Jesus is making with this account of demonic oppression. We've been thinking about demonic oppression and how a vacant heart lends itself to such oppression, but remember that the main point is not so much about the demonic, I think, but that the man in this illustration wasted an opportunity to be free. And that the people of Jesus' own day, verse 45, are doing just the same thing. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. They're squandering an opportunity that God has placed before him, before them. Now, some people in Jesus' day would waste the opportunity be, to be free in precisely the same demonic-related way as the man in this illustration, but the larger idea is that the entire generation, or at least very many people in the generation is what I should say, demonically oppressed or otherwise, very many people in this generation are right in the middle of this grand spiritual opportunity that God has given them. And like the man in verses 43, 44, and 45, many of them are going to waste it. So Jesus isn't talking just about demonic oppression so much as he's using that as an illustration to point out that like this man whose house was vacated and not filled, so this generation is faced with a great spiritual opportunity of which they're not taking advantage. A great spiritual opportunity lay before Jesus' generation, the generation he's living in here. The kingdom has come among this generation because the king has come among them. And he's teaching in their synagogues. And he's walking through their very streets. And he is healing in their cities and towns and villages. And he makes men free indeed. And so the people living in Israel in those days had this amazing opportunity to welcome the king, to invite him in. They were witnessing wonderful things, but would they take advantage Would they repent? Would they believe? Would they invite the king in? Or would they sit on their hands like the man in verse 44? And many, sad to say, would do the latter, verse 45. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. And like this man in the illustration, they would end up worse off than they had ever been before, having wasted such a grand opportunity. And I say to you, today, beware yourselves of wasted opportunity. Beware of being surrounded by the things of Christ, which you are if you regularly attend this church or some other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. You are regularly surrounded by the things of Christ. Beware of being surrounded by those things, of hearing His voice in the preaching of the Word, of hearing the call of His gospel and wasting that opportunity. Beware of being among those who have once been enlightened, Hebrews 6, and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Lest you end up worse off than ever you were before coming around. 
Perhaps you've seen this happen to someone in your own sphere of relationships. Worse off now than they ever were before. Beware. Take advantage of the opportunity that is granted you in the drawing near of Christ as his word is preached, as his praise is sung, as he is appealed to in prayer, and so on. Don't waste this grand opportunity in which you're living. Invite Christ in. And as we turn to the final five verses of the chapter now, we will see that though Jesus speaks grimly in the prior verses about the generation in which he was living, yet there were some in that generation who did not waste their opportunity. There were some who did not disbelieve all the evidence of Christ's identity, but who believed and who followed. They were Jesus' disciples there in verse 49 to whom he points. Those, he says in verse 50, who did the will of his father and who were his brothers and sisters and mothers. And by disciples in verse 49, I think Matthew is referring to all Jesus' followers, not just the inner 12, because some in this group in verses 49 and 50 are females, mothers and sisters. And the 12 disciples, as you know, were all men. And also, I think this is referring to all of his disciples, not just the inner 12, because it wasn't just the inner 12 who followed Jesus and obeyed the Father. And so the teaching here is that if you're a disciple of Jesus... If you're among those who have come to follow him and thus to serve and obey his father, then Jesus counts you as the father's family and as his family, as his brothers, as his sisters, as his mothers. Jesus has a biological family who comes to visit him here in verse 46, but he he takes the presence of his biological family And he uses it to make a point that he also has a spiritual family. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother And my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And can I just invite you today to be a part of this family? To take the evidence that we have, the evidence that you have been given about the identity of this Jesus, to reckon with his miracles, to reckon with his resurrection, to consider his wisdom, And to become his disciple, believing that he truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one in whom we must place all our hope. Can I urge you to take advantage, not to waste, not to squander, but to take advantage of the opportunity that God has placed in your life to hear the good news, to see its fruit in the life of the church, and believe on Christ's name. This one who is greater than than Jonah, greater than Solomon, a greater preacher than Jonah, a greater prophet than Jonah, a greater man of wisdom than Solomon, and greater because he is the very Son of God sent down from heaven's courts. He is the Son of God sent down to live sinlessly where you have not. The Son of God sent down to die in the place of his people, 
taking on himself, bearing in his body the punishment for their sins on the cross, and rising on the third day, demonstrating himself to be who he says he is. Believe on him. Take this evidence and become his disciples. Invite him in, and he will call you his brother. He will call you his sister. He will call you his mother. He will call you his family, the children of God. And he will mold you into one who does the will of his Father who is in heaven.